Sophie's World by Josephine Gardner. Two cultures. The only way to avoid floating in a vacuum. It won't be long before we meet now, my dear Sophie. I thought you were returned to the major's cabin. That's why I left all the cards from Hilda's father there. That was the only way they could be delivered to her. Don't worry about how she will get them. A lot can happen before June fifteenth. We have seen how the Hellenistic philosophers recycled the ideas of earlier philosophers. Some even attempted to turn their predecessors into religious prophets. Plotinus came close to claiming Plato as the savior of humanity, but as we know, another savior was born during the period we have just been discussing, and that happened outside the Greco-Roman area. I refer to Jesus of Nazareth. In this chapter, we'll see how Christianity gradually begins to permeate the Greco-Roman world, more or less the same way that Hilda's world has gradually began to permeate ours. Jesus was a Jew, and Jews belong to the Semitic culture. The Greeks and the Romans belong to the Indo-European culture. European civilization has its roots in both cultures. But before we take a closer look at the way Christianity influenced Greco-Roman culture, we must examine these roots. The Indo-Europeans. By Indo-European, we mean all the nations and cultures that use Indo-European languages. This covers all European nations except those whose inhabitants speak one of the Finno-Ugrian languages: Lap, Finnish, Estonian, and Hungarian, or Basque. In addition, most Indian and Iranian languages belong to the Indo-European family of languages. About four thousand years ago, the primitive Indo-Europeans lived in areas bordering on the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Westward toward Central Europe to France and Britain, northeastward to Scandinavia, and northward to Eastern Europe and Russia. Wherever they went, the Indo-Europeans assimilated the local culture. Though Indo-European languages and Indo-European religion came to play a dominant role, the Indian, the ancient Indian Veda, scriptures, and Greek philosophy. And for that matter, Snorro Sturluson's mythology are all written in related languages. But it is not only the languages that are related. Related languages often lead to related ideas. This is why we usually speak of an Indo-European culture. The culture of the Indo-Europeans was influenced most of all by their belief in many gods. This is called polytheism. The names of these gods, as well as most of the religious terminology, recur throughout the whole Indo-European area. I'll give you a few examples. The ancient Indians worshipped the celestial god Dyas, which in Sanskrit means the sky, day, heaven slash capital H heaven. In Greek, this god is called Zeus. In Latin, 
Jupiter. Actually, I love Peter, or Father Heaven, and an old North Tyre. So the names Dia, Zeus, Io, and Tyre are dialectal variants of the same word. You probably learned that the old Vikings believed in gods which are called Aesir. This is another word we find recurring all over the Indo-European area. In Sanskrit, the ancient classical language of India, the gods are called Ashura, and in Persian, Ahura. Another word for god is Deva in Sanskrit, Daiva in Persian, Dus in Latin, and Tiver in Old Norse. In Viking times, people believed in a special group of fertility gods, such as Njord, Frey, and Freya. These gods were referred to by a special collective name, Vanir, a word that is related to the nut name for the goddess of fertility, Venus. Sanskrit has the related word Vani, which means desire. There is also a clear affinity to be observed in some of the Indo-European myths. In Snorri's stories of the Old Norse gods, some of the myths are similar to the myths of India that were handed down to 2,000 years, years earlier. Though Snorri's myths reflect the Nordic environment and the Indian myths reflect the Indian, many of them retain traces of a common organ. We can see these traces most clearly in myths about immortal potions and the struggles of the gods against the monsters of chaos. We can also see clear similarities in modes of thought across Indo-European cultures. A typical likeness is the way the world is seen as being the subject of a drama in which the forces of good and evil confront each other in a relentless struggle. Indo-Europeans have therefore often tried to predict how the battles between good and evil will turn out. One could say that with some truth that it was no accident that Greek philosophy originated in the Indo-European sphere of culture. Indian, Greek, and North mythology all have the obvious leanings toward a a philosophic or speculative view of the world. The Indo-Europeans sought insight into the history of the world. We can even trace a particular word for insight or knowledge from one culture to another all over the Indo-European world. In Sanskrit, it is vidya. The word is identical to the Greek word adia, which is so important in Plato's philosophy. From Latin, we have the word video, but on Roman ground, the word simply means to see. For us, I see can mean I understand, and in the cartoons, a light bulb can flash above Woody Woodpecker's head when he gets a bright idea. Not until our own day did seeing become synonymous with staring at the TV screen. In English, we know the words wise and wisdom. In German, wissen, to know. Norwegian has the word witten, which has the same root as the Indian word vidya, and the Greek idea, and the Latin video. All in all, we can establish that sight was the most important of the senses for Indo-Europeans.
the literature of Indians, Greeks, Persians, and Teutons alike was characterized by the great cosmic visions. There is that word again. Vision comes from the Latin verb video. It was also characteristic for Indo-European culture to make pictures and sculptures of the gods, and of mythical events. Lastly, Indo-Europeans had a cyclic view of history. This is the belief that history goes in circles, just like the seasons of the year. There is thus no beginning and no end to history, but there are different civilizations that rise and fall in an eternal interplay between birth and death. Both of the two great Oriental religions, Hinduism and Buddhism, are Indo-European in origin. So is the Greek philosophy, and we can see a number of great parallels between Hinduism and Buddhism on one hand and Greek philosophy on the other. Even today, Hinduism and Buddhism are strongly imbued with philosophical, philosophical reflection. Not infrequently, we find in Hinduism and Buddhism an emphasis on the fact that the deity is present in all things, pantheism, and that man can become one with God through religious insight. Remember Plotinus, Sophie. To achieve this requires the practice of deep self-communion, of meditation. Therefore, in the Orient, passivity and seclusion can be religious ideals. In ancient Greece, too, there were many people who believed in aesthetic, or religiously secluded, way of life for the salvation of the soul. Many aspects of medieval monastic life can be traced back to beliefs dating from the Greco-Roman civilization. Similarly, the transmigration of the soul, or the cycle of rebirth, is a fundamental belief in many Indo-European cultures. For more than two thousand five hundred years, the ultimate purpose of life for every Indian has been the release from the cycle of rebirth. Plato also believed in this transmigration of the soul. The Semites. Let us now turn to the Semites, Sophie. They belong to a completely different culture with a completely different language. The Semites originated in Arabian Peninsula. But they also migrated to different parts of the world. The Jews lived far from their home for more than two thousand years. Semitic history and religion reached furthest away from their roots by way of Christendom, though Semitic cultures also became widely spread via Islam. All three Western religions—Judaism, Christianity, and Islam—share a Semitic background. The Muslims' holy scripture. The Koran and the Old Testament were both written in the Semitic family of languages. One of the Old Testament words for God has the same Semitic root as the Muslim Allah. The word Allah means quite simply God. When we get to Christianity, the picture becomes more complicated. Christianity also has a Semitic background, but the New Testament was written in Greek. And when the Christian theology or creed was formulated, it was influenced by Greek and Latin, and thus also by Hellenistic philosophy. The Indo-Europeans believed in many different gods. It was just as their belief for one god. 
This is called monotheism. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all share the same fundamental idea that there is only one God. The Semites also had in common a linear view of history. In other words, history was seen as an ongoing line. In the beginning, God created the world, and that was the beginning of history. But one day, history will end, and that will be Judgment Day, when God judges the living and the dead. The role played by history is an important feature of these three Western religions. It is be- it, the belief is that God intervenes in this course of history, even that history exists in order that God may manifest His will in the world, just as He will lead Abraham, Abraham to the promised land. He leads mankind's steps through history to the day of judgment. When that day comes, all evil in the world will be destroyed. With their strong emphasis on God's activity in the course of history, the Semites were preoccupied with the writing of history for many thousands of years, and these historical roots constitute the very core of their holy scriptures. Even today, the city of Jerusalem is a significant religious center for Jews, Christians, and Muslims alike. This indicates something of the common background of these three religions. The city comprises prominent Jewish synagogues, Christian churches, and Islamic mosques. It is therefore deeply tragic that Jerusalem should have been become a bone of contention, with people killing each other by thousands because they cannot agree on who is to have ascendancy over this. Eternal city. May the UN one day succeed in making dualism a holy shrine for all three religions. We shall not go any further into this more practical part of a philosophy course for the moment. We will leave it entirely to Hilda's father. You must have gathered by now that he is a UN observer in Lebanon. To be more precise, I can reveal that he is serving as a major. If you are beginning to see some connection, that's quite as it should be. On the other hand, let's not anticipate events, shall we? We said that the most important of the senses for Indo-Europeans was sight. How important hearing was to Semitic cultures is just as interesting. It is no incident that the Jewish creed begins with the words "Hear, O Israel." In the in, in the Old Testament, we read how people. Heard the words of the Lord, and the Jewish prophets usually began their sermons with the words, "Thus spake Jehovah, God." Hearing the word, ma, hearing the word of God, is also emphasized in Christianity. The religious ceremonies of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam are all characterized by reading aloud or reciting. I also mentioned that the Indo-Europeans always made pictorial representations or sculptures of their gods. It was just a characteristic for the Semites that they never did. They were not supposed to create pictures or sculptures of God or that deity. The Old Testament commands that people shall not make any image of God. This is still a law today for both Judaism and Islam. 
Within Islam, there is, moreover, a general aversion to both photography and art, because people should not compete with God in creating anything. But Christian churches are full of pictures of Jesus and God. You're probably thinking, True enough, Sophie. But this is just one example of how Christendom was influenced by the Greco-Roman world. In the Greek Orthodox Church, that is, in Greece and Russia, graven images or sculptures or crucifixes from Bible stories are still forbidden. In contrast to the great religions of the Orient, the three Western religions emphasize that there is a distance between God and His creation. The purpose is not to be released from the cycle of rebirth, but to be redeemed from sin and blame. Moreover, religious life is characterized more by prayer, sermons, and the study of the sculptures than by self-communication and meditation. Mm-hmm.